everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the story of Zachary Vanderhorst. Last year before the world shut down, I got to watch several hearings where Vanderhorst who pleaded guilty in 1974 to murder, was resentenced under SB 1437. And then this year, a San Francisco judge vacated two of his remaining charges, including a rape charge. We have on our show San Francisco public defender Rebecca Young, who helped to free and ultimately exonerated Vanderhurst. Uh, welcome. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to put this into perspective because I think it's just helpful to illustrate just how long this man was in prison um, for a crime he didn't do, by the way. Um, So next December, I turned 50. So in 1974, when he was sentenced, I was not even two years old. So this man has been essentially locked away my entire life. I think that puts it into a little bit of context, right? Yes, it does. He was, he had just turned 19 when he was arrested. His birthday is in August and he was arrested in September. So in August, he turned 19. In September, he was arrested and he never saw freedom again until February 7th, 2020. And then the world shut down a few weeks later. Uh, exactly uh, five weeks later, the world shut down. Yes. And, and, and because he was not allowed by the parole division, he was not allowed to go live in his sister's home, his safe home where he had his own bedroom uh, and would be surrounded by people who loved him. Uh, parole made him go to 111 Taylor, where for some reason, initially, parole was not allowing the residents of 111 Taylor to wear masks, and Zachary got COVID. God. Yes, and fortunately, despite his age, and despite that he had some vulnerable underlying health conditions, um, he survived, obviously, because he's still with us today. So, but that was terrifying for me when I learned he'd been diagnosed with COVID and was transferred to an isolation um, unit. Other than that, um, how is he coping with um, being out and his new life? Well, he, after six months, he was allowed to leave 111 Taylor and he did go live with his sister and he still remains there today. And he was working 
uh, he worked first one job cleaning the public latrines on Market Street. And then from that job, he went to um, a rec and park job where he was cleaning up the parks, which was much better. However, <clears throat> it hasn't been tremendously smooth because his health issues have started um, increasing. So um, he's now struggling to get adequate health care. And unfortunately, but he's <clears throat> well, as he says, every day that I'm free and alive is a good day. So he maintains a positive attitude. Well, that's good. Unfortunately, you know, I've followed a lot of these um, wrongful conviction cases, and uh, it's not unusual that they have really serious health problems after they get out. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure why that is, but it may have something to do with how stressful it is to live in our cities. Well, and also really bad health care in the prison system probably doesn't help anything. Right. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about the story of uh, Zachary. Um, how did he end up in this place? Okay. So uh, Zachary grew up in the Fillmore. Uh, he had lived there his entire life. His mother lived there. His grandmother lived there. He would move back and forth between his mother's house and his grandmother's house. But at the time of his arrest, he was mostly living at his grandmother's house. He came from a large family, um, the, meaning he had a lot of siblings. I think there were a total of eight kids. And um, his father was gone fairly early in his life. And so his mother was on public assistance and you know, struggled to make ends meet and to provide for all her kids. Um, Zachary was one of the younger ones. He was toward the end. He wasn't the youngest, but close. Uh, he did work some jobs, but due to being introduced um, to heroin by a cousin, he ultimately developed a heroin addiction. And one day when he was dope sick, I think for lack of a better term, he asked a friend of his from the neighborhood who he knew always had money. And he asked this guy if he could just spot him a 20, just loan him some money and he would pay him back. Um, it was a period where Zachary was unemployed when this happened. He had been working as a dishwasher at some restaurant. I'm not sure. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was the magic flute or the, something. Uh, anyway, the magic pan, the magic flute is an opera. Anyway. Um, and the guy who was only 16 years old said, yeah, meet me later and I'll have something for you. And when Zachary shows up that evening to meet up with him, the something that this coal miner was thinking about was to commit a burglary and that he would share proceeds with Zachary. So Zachary, who is now quite sick, um, goes along with it and they get into this home on Fell Street and uh, the resident of the home who answers the door runs toward the back of the flat. It's one of those San Francisco 
Victorian flats, you know, that's kind of a railroad flat straight back. And the co-miner tells Zachary to just get something from the home and he'll go deal with the guy who's running away. Zachary goes into a front living room and is wrapping up a television. When the co-miner comes running back to him and says, we got to go, we got to get out of here. And Zachary says, what happened? What, why? And the co-miner says, because I shot the guy. So Zachary just drops everything and they leave. So at first, Zachary didn't believe that his co-miner, crime partner, was telling him the truth because he had not heard a gunshot. And um, he thought that perhaps the co-miner got something and was tricking him and wasn't going to share it with him. Uh, you know, there's no honor among thieves. So it, he was mistrustful. However, he went on the television news that night and saw that, in fact, someone had been shot and, in fact, died. Um, now, for years, Zachary presumed un until basically 2015, I believe, Zachary presumed that the man who had died was the man who had answered the door. And in fact, that isn't the case. The man who was killed by his co-miner was someone who had come down from the upstairs flat upon hearing the noise and had entered uh, the downstairs flat and said something to the co-miner to kind of try to get him to leave. And that's when he was shot. And the reason Zachary never heard the gunshot is because it happened outside, out back, on kind of a back deck. So this happened on September 12th, 1974. And he and the coal miner were arrested on uh, September 21st, 1974, in some other sort of rumble that had taken place on the street that they were both involved in along with five or six other boys from the neighborhood. And the police brought all of those kids in and started questioning them. And I believe that one of them basically said in order to get out of the trouble he was in, I can tell you who committed the robbery, the burglary murder on Fell Street. Because on Shortly thereafter, after his arrest, the homicide inspectors were interrogating Zachary. And so this led to a number of things. Um, he denied involvement. He uh, told them that those kinds of crimes were being committed by these other people. And um, the homicide inspectors didn't believe him because they trusted their informant. And, uh, you know, they put together a lineup. And one of the things that happened in the lineup didn't become apparent to me until I'd been working on the case for several months. Zachary kept telling me, you know, they made me wear a yellow jacket. They made me wear, they forced me to wear this yellow jacket. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe there was a description of a yellow jacket. You know, I, I don't think I was giving it the attention it deserved immediately. But when I started studying the pictures that we had of the of the, sorry, I keep calling it a photo lineup. It was an in-person lineup. These pictures were all in black and white. And Zachary was the only one wearing this oversized, ill-fitting 
what looked to be a light, very light colored, possibly white windbreaker. And then when I lined it up with the two times somebody picked him out and fingered him as being involved in these other cases, it was when he was wearing that light colored windbreaker. And based on these in-person lineups, he got charged with robberies he didn't even know had happened. He got charged with a robbery that involved a rape. Um, basically, they cleared the books. In the summer of 1974, there were a rash of home invasion robberies occurring in San Francisco. And because it had appeared in the newspaper, um, the police were under a tremendous amount of community pressure to solve these home invasion robberies. I'm not quite sure how many there had been, but I would say close to five. And um, they solved them by charging Zachary Vanderhorst with basically almost all of them. Including, of course, the one he was involved in, but where he had not committed the homicide. So there are so many different layers to this story to unravel. Um, yeah, yes, that is um, true. So I want to start, though, um, just with uh, the parole process, because that's a travesty in and of itself. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, what was it, 17 times? I'm going off the top of my head, but, um, and, and part of the problem was that um, he never accepted responsibility because he didn't actually do any of this. Right. So over the course, so once he goes to prison, he goes to prison under a seven to life sentence. He was sentenced under the old law which was in place prior to the determinant sentencing law coming in to the books, which happened in, I think it was voted on in the legislature in 1977 um, or 76 and took effect in, in January of 77. So he went in under seven to life because of the murder charge. And his first parole hearing was after seven years. So in his eighth year of incarceration, he went to the parole board for the first time. And that would have been 1981. And so between 1981 and 2018, he, he was at the board approximately every three years. He consistently told the same story. I was involved in the burglary on Fell Street where a man was killed, but I was not the person who did the killing and I didn't even know it had happened before I left the home. I was not involved in these other two robberies and this rape that I pled guilty to. I don't even know what happened. I wasn't there and I'm innocent of those crimes. And the parole board, would come back with the same response every time. And that would be, you lack insight into your commitment offenses and you lack remorse. 
We are not here to retry the facts of your case. The fact is you pled guilty. And that is the record before us. And that is what we accept. And they said, you don't, you, you are showing that you are not remorseful. And he said, as far as the robberies that I didn't commit, it is hard to feel remorseful for something that I didn't do. And it didn't matter to them. Um, you know, we're dealing at the time. Thankfully, Governor Newsom is changing, beginning to change the composition of the parole board. But at the time, um, commissioners on the parole board were retired CDC guards, retired police officers, retired sheriffs. You had the occasional uh, person involved in the humanities, either as a psychologist or a social worker, but that was exceedingly rare. And sometimes there'd be administrative people from the Department of Corrections who would sit on the parole board. So they could care less about his claims of innocence and they did not want to hear it. When I first met Zachary, after I had him brought from state prison to the county jail, and we had our very first in-person face-to-face meeting, I said to him, he, he was complaining a little bit about not being paroled. And he, he said something to the effect of, I would see guys around me who had committed way worse crimes, who had more than one murder, and they were getting paroled. And I never could get paroled, no matter what I did. And I said, well, Zachary, you know, maybe it had something to do with the fact that you had, you'd committed these other robberies and this rape that might be, you know, it could have put the brakes on you getting parole on top of this murder charge. And he said, but I didn't do those crimes. And I said, but you pled guilty to them. And he said, I know, because my lawyers told me I had to, because it was part of the package deal for me to not get the gas chamber. And I, I mean, at first I just, I was incredulous. I think at first I didn't really totally believe it. And I thought, could this have really happened? Can somebody be pled by their attorney to a rape they didn't commit? Could this really happen? And I started working on the case and I started meeting with him and talking to him. And I knew pretty much by the end of that first meeting, but I was thoroughly convinced after a couple of more meetings with him that he was completely credible and was telling the truth. And I started looking into what little evidence remained from 46 years ago. Um, But the guilty plea transcript was one of the things that really convinced me that what had happened to him was a horrible travesty of justice that needed to be reversed. So let's, um, I guess, flash forward here. So you you were convinced that, um, I mean, from from your perspective, did he do any of the crimes at all? He he was part of the burglary on Fell Street. Yes. So that was the only one. He was part of, but everything else he, he was not. 
Correct. And it was apparent that his lawyer at the time, who was a public defender, pled him guilty despite the fact that there was not a single shred of physical or forensic evidence tying him to these other robberies or to the rape. Um, and then his, his kind of lease on life, though, is 1437. Um, so yes. for those who are not familiar with it, uh, can you explain that, one, uh, that briefly? Yes. SB 1437 was the law that took effect on January 1st, 2019, uh, that was written by Senator Nancy Skinner and also Kate Chatfield, um, who at the time was with a different group than where she is now. And they crafted this legislation that narrowed the application of the felony murder rule. The felony murder rule um, has been a rule in effect for hundreds of years and comes to us from England. And basically it says, if you are involved in one of these listed felonies, such as burglary, robbery, rape, um, kidnapping was added later on. It was not, kidnapping wasn't added until I think the 1980s. Uh, any of these listed felonies and somebody dies during the commission of the felony or during your flight from the commission of the felony, you are responsible for that death as a first degree murder, even if you're not the person who committed the killing. And so it, the felony murder rule was a rule that lifted the burden from prosecutors to prove a criminal mind or what we call in the law, the mens rea. Okay, the mental state with which you act when you're committing, when you're acting. What is your mens rea? Do you have a specific intent to kill? Are you acting with gross negligence? Are you premeditating and deliberating? There are all these different layers of mens rea and you are culpable for your mens rea. And the district attorney has to prove your mens rea by proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but not for felony murder. The only thing the district attorney needs to prove in a felony murder case is that you had the specific intent to commit the underlying felony. So the only thing the district attorney would have had to have proved in the Fell Street case was that Zachary Vanderhorst acted with a specific intent to commit a burglary of this home. They don't have to prove anything with respect to the homicide, nothing. They just have to show that it happened during the burglary. It doesn't matter that Zachary wasn't there, that he didn't pull the trigger, that he didn't know it happened. None of that matters. And so what SB 1437 did is basically, in layman's terms, I can say, it made it matter. It made all of that matter. And it narrowed application of the felony murder rule to the actual killers, to people who acted with a specific intent to kill, aiding and abetting the person who did the killing um, or, and or uh, were major participants in the underlying felony and acted with reckless indifference to human life 
during the killing. And the prosecution can proceed under one of these theories or all three of them, but whichever one they choose, they have to now show by proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the person acted with a specific intent to kill or was the actual killer or um, acted with reckless indifference to human life in the killing. So this legislation took effect January 1st, 2019, and that's when Zachary sent a letter to the San Francisco Public Defender's Office asking for help um, to bring a petition to the court. And in his letter, he said, I'm not the person who killed. I didn't even know it had happened at the time. And uh, Jeff Adachi assigned Mr. Vanderhorst's case to me. The interesting thing, I think, about felony murder is, you know, it can really run a gamut uh, from, mm -hmm. you know, having heavy culpability in it, even if you're not the actual shooter, to having really no culpability. I, I was reading this, uh, it's almost comical, uh, and I shouldn't laugh, but uh, there was this bank robbery, um, and um, they uh, they held up the bank with, with guns. They come out of the bank, and it's two people, right, man and a woman. Mm -hmm. They shoot um, uh, one of them. I can't remember which one, and, and kill her uh, or him. Uh, and they end up charging uh, the other uh, accomplice with uh, murder <laughs> because right. uh, they they ruled that the person died in the commission of this felony. Uh, right. You know, the police that shot and killed uh, the person, probably wrongfully, by the way. Um, so so the, a gun battle is initiated and they determined that the, it's the police bullet that killed the innocent bystander. Correct. Um, uh -huh. Well, the, uh, not innocent. Uh, they were one of the bank robbers. Um, oh, one of the bank robbers. Yeah. I see. Well, that, yeah. in that case, the DA would probably proceeding be proceeding under a provocative act theory. Yeah, well, in this case, they charged them under felony murder. Um, in any case, provocative act is is kind of a subset of felony murder. Oh, it's like where you can it's it's where you can get charged with the killing of one of your crime partners that occurs by another person. So uh, a case that I can remember from the books is where group of kids commits a residential burglary. The resident inside the home pulls out his gun and shoots and kills one of the kids. The other kids are charged with that, their friends killing under the provocative act theory of felony murder. Um, yeah. But Zachary's cases seems to me like a classic case of felony murder that should get overturned by 1437. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. that, you know, he didn't even know the murder occurred, had no intention, um, played no part in the murder. Um, from, from your perspective, was it relatively easy to, uh, to convince? Uh, <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a walk in the park. And it was anything but that. I fought tooth and nail. I couldn't believe how hard I had to fight. I was 
quite frankly, stunned. Um, the first week, I, I was in hearings twice as long as I thought I would be in hearings. Um, first, the district attorney came in and fought under the theory that Zachary Vanderhorst was the actual killer. And I was like, okay, yippee, because I'm going to win. And um, it, I, I did not even, I, I was so confident. I didn't even think I needed to put Zachary on the stand, which I didn't. And one of the reasons I didn't was because I knew I had these other charges that I was going to be attacking and I didn't want him testifying yet. And so I, I kept him off the stand and we were able to, the, the district attorney was not able to overcome our showing um, by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So she could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Zachary was the actual killer. We had two letters from one of the homicide inspectors. Uh, one of the homicide inspectors, uh, kind of famous in San Francisco, Earl Sanders, actually wrote the parole board on two different occasions saying that the co-miner had later on confessed to being the shooter. And that he wanted the parole board to consider the fact that Zachary was not the actual killer in the burglary that resulted in a man dying. Um, that was pretty powerful evidence. And um, we also had other evidence that we were allowed to bring in showing that the co-miner continued to commit robbery murders, residential robbery murders, one in 1975, that he went to the California Youth Authority for two years, and then two more in Oakland in 1981. So we were able to show that this guy had killed four people over the course of his lifetime and had only done seven years. And so because he was always the one who was armed, in these other residential robberies, um, the judge became convinced that Zachary was not armed in the one that happened on Fell Street where a man died. So, um, and then I thought, okay, this is it, we're home free. And I, I was very happy and excited. And the judge said, however, I am going to proceed on prong three. Prong three is the prong where if the district attorney can establish that the petitioner was a major participant in the underlying felony and acted with reckless indifference to human life during the killing, he's not entitled to relief under SB 1437. So this generated a whole nother round of litigation by me because I said, you know, you are violating separation of powers. You're not the prosecutor in the courtroom. How you don't have a burden of proof. So you cannot do this. You can't decide you're now going to prosecute the petition. How, how are you gonna carry your burden of proof? And what, and what at the end, are you gonna rule against yourself or rule for yourself? Because the DA was standing there saying, no, we're not going forward under that theory, judge. We're not, you're on your own. And the judge was like, well, I'm the one who decides the facts. I think he actually said, I'm the decider. And I am. Say that. I remember that. Yeah. He said, I'm the decider. And I was like, oh my God, I'm having flashbacks. And I, 
and we had to keep going in this hearing. I was furious. Um, but ultimately we prevailed. He ruled that Zachary was a major participant in the burglary, but that he had not acted with reckless indifference to human life during the killing. And you need both of those. And so he reversed the murder conviction and a week later, Zachary was released on parole. So it was not anything but easy. We had the same judge for the motion for vacatur to overrule the rape and robberies, the other two robberies. And again, we fought tooth and nail. And in this filing, um, you know, we filed extensive papers and exhibits to establish our only burden here was proof by a preponderance of the evidence that he was actually innocent of committing these offenses. And the district attorney submitted on our moving papers, which basically meant she wasn't opposing our motion for vacature. I mean, she did everything except file a joinder in our motion. Again, the judge was like, nope, I'm the fact finder. Call your first witness. So we were ready. Um, we were armed for bear in this hearing, um, but we could only get one court date a month. So our petition was filed in February of this year. We didn't get our first hearing date until July. And then every, we would get one Monday a month. So we had another hearing date in August, another one in September, and another one in October. And finally at the one in October, um, he, the judge kind of said, okay, throwing in the towel. Uh, but he felt that we had not carried our burden as to one of the robberies. So he vacated the convictions for rape and robbery. Those both had occurred in this one home on Ellis Street. Again, committed by most likely these other two people that we had under subpoena for these hearings. Um, but he felt we hadn't carried our burden on the third robbery which had taken place on Terra Vista. So Zachary still has a robbery on his record. So we don't have a huge amount of time left, um, but I um, wanted to kind of get uh, a few global issues here. Um, sure. So from your perspective, what went wrong in this case? Is this a racial issue? Is it a, a just an inadequate defense issue. I would hate to throw a public defender under the bus, but it sounded like they were a bit lazy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, this is a really important question. Um, in 1974, Zachary, who's Black, was a high school dropout. He was fairly uneducated. He was addicted to heroin. He was completely impoverished. His family had no resources to help him. And he went to the public defender and even at the public defender's office. So even with his lack of education and all his other disadvantages, Zachary knew two things. He knew that he would have to rely on his lawyer whenever he was in court and that he would have to rely on his lawyer at a jury trial 
and he knew that his lawyer wasn't fighting for him at all. In every meeting, his lawyer was doing everything in his power to convince Zachary to plead guilty. And as Zachary once put it to me, he just came to talk to me to try to get me to be comfortable about pleading guilty. So Zachary is indicted on all of these charges on October 25th. And his lawyer is pleading him guilty on December 17th, six weeks later. And he was facing the death penalty. He, and so his lawyer told him that these other charges are part of the package deal. And that if you go to trial, you will be convicted. And if you're convicted, you will get the gas chamber. And this is the only way to avoid the gas chamber. And yes, did race play a role? I firmly believe that race played a role because I think that even for, definitely for judges and for prosecutors, but that even for some defense lawyers, it was just so easy to throw away a black life. Um, you know, he had no power, he had no financial resources, he didn't have anybody helping him. And he was also told by his public defender that you will get out in seven to 10 years. And so because he was good for the felony murder under the old law, um, his lawyers, it, it, to them, it just didn't even seem to matter that he was pleading to other more serious, just as serious crimes like rape. Nobody advised him that he would have to register for the rest of his life as a sex offender. That's clear. We established that. That's in the record. Nobody did any investigation. Nobody went to talk to even the rape victim, nobody in the defense I'm referring to. Nobody talked to the rape victim, the robbery victims. No defense attorney or defense investigator even went to talk to Zachary's family. And if they had, they could have established at least one alibi, which is the one for the rape and robbery. And so the lack of compassion and care and concern, you know, one thing I wanted to ask the public defender when I had him on the stand, he's long retired now and is 90 years old, was if this had been your own child, what would you have done? If this had been your niece or your nephew charged with these crimes, what kind of defense would you have wanted for this person? And I feel the need to um, anyway. say that this is not the kind of defense we see in San Francisco um, in uh, your current office. So, um, right. you know, I, I've, I've seen quite a few cases and San Francisco has extremely aggressive defense, probably the most aggressive public defenders I've, I've seen. Uh, and I've seen a lot of different courts. Yes, we still consider ourselves not only the best public defender office in the country, but a model for public defender offices across the country. And thanks to Jeff Adachi's uh, 15 years of leadership, he not only created an incredibly strong office by building it from the ground up, creating an investigation unit that was well-staffed, a paralegal unit that was well-staffed, social workers, um, but also he brought in training 
to and, and set the example. So through all these different methods, setting the example, going to trial, showing us how to fight and how to stand up and how to have courage, but at the same time, how to listen to our clients and have compassion. Like our clients are at the core of our work. And he developed the concept of client-centered representation, which carries forward to this day under Mano Raju's leadership. So we are many light years away from what the public defender office was in the 1970s, just through training and supervision um, alone. So yeah, I, I definitely believe that this could never happen again in this office. And I also want to believe that the lackadaisical police investigation could not happen again, that under Chief Scott, this kind of clear the books um, work would not take place. And I also want to believe that the judges wouldn't allow a plea like this to occur six weeks after indictment when special circumstances are charged, that the judges would say, wait a minute, what explained to me, counsel, what work you have done to verify your client's guilt of these charges? I don't know, but I, that's what I hope and want to believe. It also shows the incredible importance of the need for post-conviction work and for continuing criminal justice reforms that, such as that we have achieved with SB 1437, because there are many more injustices of the past that need correction. Zachary Vanderhorst is just one among many. So I think that is probably the note that I will wrap up on. Uh, I do wanna make one quick point um, myself, which is that, you know, a lot of people are really skeptical of this notion that somebody would plead guilty uh, to a mm -hmm. crime that they didn't commit. Um, sure. We also, uh, you know, there's a lot of skepticism that people would confess uh, wrongly. Um, and we know through DNA work and all sorts of work by the Innocence Project that both of those are not true, that uh, there's actually a sizable percentage, maybe as much as a fifth of all uh, wrongful conviction cases, uh, the person actually pled guilty to the crime. Uh, we also, you know, know that things like, um, you know, trial penalties uh, in this mm -hmm. case, you know, the, the fact that there was a death penalty hanging over the guy's head uh, played a factor in him uh, taking the plea, um, you know, based maybe on the faulty uh, advice of counsel that this was the only way to spare his life. Uh, so, um, you know, and I guess I also want to say that while I agree with you that in San Francisco, it's unlikely that this case would repeat itself I think across the country, this is probably a scenario that plays out way too often uh, than either of us would want to know um, or want to believe at least. Uh, so, um, so on that, um, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, this is really an incredible case. I opened with this notion that this man was 19 years old. Uh, when he went to prison mm -hmm. in 1974. 
and he just got out last year. Um, yeah, he was he was sixty four years old when he was released. So he lost um, a huge chunk of his life behind bars. Um, most you know. most of his life, yeah, yeah, most of his life. And you know, I I do want to thank uh, Kecker Van Nest and Peters for allowing one of their excellent attorneys, Patrick Murray, to denote to donate countless pro bono hours to assist me on this case. Um, it certainly was a huge boost to um, everything that we were able to do. They, they funded an investigator, they funded their own paralegal. You know, they did all the copying, Patrick helped with research and writing. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful on their part. And they also share in, you know, the um, the outcome that we were able to achieve for Zachary, which was freedom and also vacation, getting his wrongful convictions vacated. Thank you so much for your time. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.